you know, the, the mission was to uh, render Afghanistan unusable as a terrorist safe haven, mm -hmm. something like that. It, it was, you know. Kill or capture Al-Qaeda wherever you find them. <laughs> you flew in on the latest technological helicopter in a damn sandstorm. We have SATCOM radios and GPS, but yet I'm riding a horse. You know, Mark Mark was with Dostum, I was with, with Karzai. We we were all figuring out what we needed to do to hold the country together after the dust settled. And it was something that we just did as captains. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really kind of crazy when you think about yeah. it. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. This is sort of a unique episode of The Spear. It's been almost exactly 16 years since the U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan began after the 9-11 attacks. For 16 years, we've been at war there. Many of our listeners have been a part of it at one point or another. But this episode features two guests who were there at the very beginning. Jason Amarine and Mark Nooch were U.S. Army captains at the time each in command of a special forces detachment. They were among the very first U.S. military forces in the country in the fall of 2001. Nooch was in the country's north, fighting alongside Abdul Rashid Dostum in the Northern Alliance, while Amarine was with future Afghan President Hamid Karzai in the south. They sat down with MWI's Captain Jake Morali to share their stories of the very first days and weeks of what would ultimately become the longest war in American history. A couple notes before the conversation. First, Jason and Mark were at West Point for a screening of the CNN film Legion of Brothers, a documentary that features both of them and their teams. If you're interested in what you hear in this episode, you'll definitely enjoy the documentary, so I'd highly recommend checking it out. Second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. And lastly, just so you know, there is just a little bit of swearing in this episode. All right, here's Jake Moraldi with Jason Amarine and Mark Nooch. Jason Amarine and Mark Nooch, uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time to sit down and talk to us. It's great having you here for uh, the screening of Legion of Brothers, the CNN documentary. What I'd like to do right off the bat for folks that maybe don't know you by name, uh, if not by your experience or reputation, is just get a little bit of background on, on each of you and, and what your experience was. Uh, in Afghanistan in 2001. And I guess, Colonel Amarine, we can start with you. Uh, I'm Jason Amarine. I'm a 1993 graduate of the United States Military Academy. Uh, majored in Arabic, uh, went infantry, was stationed in Panama and Korea. Uh, and then because of my Arabic background, uh, when I went to Special Forces uh, Selection, was selected and went to the Q course, uh, there really wasn't anywhere else they were going to send me except 5th Group. Uh, so I uh, went to 5th Group, uh, commanded two teams there. Uh, first was ODA 572, and then my second team was ODA 574 when 9-11 broke out. And Mark, you have a similar, similar uh, background? I have a similar. Uh, our paths are definitely similar. Uh, I'm a 1993 graduate of Kansas State University Army ROTC program. Uh, received a regular Army uh, active duty commission in the infantry. Uh, Jason and I were actually in the same uh, infantry officer basic course and the same ranger school uh, course. Uh, I went off to the 101st uh, as a rifle platoon leader. Uh, within six months had been moved to be the rifle company executive officer, still literally as a second lieutenant. Uh, and then uh, um, I applied and made it to go to the Ranger Regiment and ended up uh, as a platoon leader, then again in uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion for a couple years before going to Special Forces. Uh, I believe Jason and, our, and my paths crossed again at the Infantry Officer Advanced Course. Uh, and then into the same uh, officer's qualification course for Special Forces. Uh, I also ended up at 5th Group. Uh, at that time in 98-99, uh, the combatant commander boundaries had changed and 5th Group, CENTCOM, Central Command, and then 5th Group assumed responsibility for uh, the former Soviet uh, states and the Central Asian Republic. So 
part of that agreement for going to fifth group as a special forces officer was I was one of the first three uh, guys that actually got Russian out of our language course to come to fifth group. And then within a year, uh, found myself and my team tasked to a mission in Uzbekistan uh, pre 9-11. And then uh, also pre 9-11 had deployed to uh, Jordan and Kuwait uh, as well. So talk to me about how 9-11 changed your, your experience of fifth group, what you were doing in fifth group, what you were preparing to do in fifth group before you went to Afghanistan. Uh, I had just completed, on 9-11, I had just completed the typical two years as a Special Forces uh, A-Team detachment commander as a captain and uh, had just gotten moved off my team into the uh, 3rd Battalion Operations Section to be an assistant operations officer. Worked there about four days through right after 9-11 and then uh, my team 595 was, was picked to be one of the first from the group to deploy and I was put right back on my team. And uh, you know, within a short time, we then deployed uh, overseas to then secret forward staging base in Uzbekistan uh, called K2. And uh, subsequently, we went there for one mission that did not materialize. And then we subsequently received our mission to uh, be among the first teams to go into Afghan northern Afghanistan. And so I imagine your years was very similar, your, your experience, correct? Yeah, I was, uh, I was training in uh, Kazakhstan uh, with my team when 9-11 uh, broke out. And the senior Kazakh officers that we got to know were veterans of the war in Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded. So it was uh, really a, kind of an eerie time because they truly were heartbroken over what happened in America, but they were just as heartbroken over what we were about to face in Afghanistan. And uh, I mean, you, you could tell they'd gotten to know us over the course of a year, and uh, is we were getting ready to go back to fifth group to kind of uh, you know, reconfigure and get ready for whatever was going on in Afghanistan. We didn't know what, what our role would be yet. Uh, I mean, these officers were grabbing us, taking us out to get us drinks, and it really was almost like, you know, awake. Um, it, didn't, it didn't shake us up. I, I, I felt like uh, when they would tell us stories about what they did in Afghanistan, I mean, it, it, a lot of the stories and the advice they gave us were, were things that we would go, okay, that's great, we need to do the opposite of that. They're well-meaning, it's just they had an approach which was you know, kill them all, let, let uh, God sort them out, or Allah. And for us, it was, okay, yeah, we're not doing that. Uh, but it, it was still a, a pretty eerie kind of experience. Uh, then when we uh, returned to uh, Fort Campbell, uh, the part to me that w was actually really cool was uh, there, there was a group of us, you know, we, we all have kind of our network of friends. Uh, Mark I'd known for years. And then I had other friends who also were kind of in, in my circle of friends, uh, Dean Newman, a uh, couple other guys who I, uh, and we all were pretty much put in the queue to go into Afghanistan. It, it felt like none of us got left behind. And I, I felt like in my career, the thing that I was always most afraid of is being the guy that got left behind, mm -hmm. the one missing it when everybody else went off. and. Uh, uh, you know, and, and fought the fought the good fight, uh, but to me it it was uh, kind of crazy because all of my friends we were all queued up and we all went over, and uh, the last thought on that we were compartmentalized, so in theory we weren't supposed to know one another's missions, but knowing that the other teams over there were people who I knew, people who are friends of mine, people who I cared about them, they cared about me. Uh, it, it actually made me feel a lot more comfortable because even if I didn't know what Mark's mission was, I knew that if I got in trouble I could call and Mark would come and get me. That was kind of the feeling I had. And it uh, really, you know, for, for me it played out all the way to the end. I mean, you know, we'll get to that later, but I, I knew that I was surrounded by friends. I'd like to talk about what, what Jason just touched on in, in 2000, my team uh, from fifth group 
the, the same 595 team, uh, was working in Uzbekistan. On, uh, this is pre-9-11, working with their airborne and special operations guys uh, over better part of six months that year. So we formed really, really good relationships with them. But uh, um, during that period, I had uh, Uzbek special forces officers that had been in the Russian Spetsnaz that had served in, they were combat veterans mm -hmm. of their war in Afghanistan. And, and even though 9-11 had not yet happened in our timeline, these guys were very forthcoming sure. in, in conversations and talking about that experience and the hard lessons that they had learned. And I'm, I, you know, uh, I had a former Russian Uzbek Special Forces officer that was a battalion commander then, is a guy that shot me, how to, taught me how to shoot an RPG, mm -hmm. you know, and their heavy weapons. And I thought that was just almost surreal. Here I am, an American soldier in the former Soviet Republic. And this guy is is shared as brothers, you know, uh, from from that common soldier bond to share that. Um, the to touch on his other point made about it was very comforting knowing that that cohort we had about eight captains out of our Q Corps. So I'm talking about guys that have been together for two years mm -hmm. to get through that pipeline. Eight of us came uh, to uh, fifth group. We all did good things, different places, parts of the Middle East. And then we all played key roles in that first uh, six months after 9-11, uh, whether that was guys tasked out as singletons to go augment other agencies uh, or uh, guys that, that had critical missions in, in some part of the country or were uh, on a key role in the staff that then actually come into country to help do things. Anyway, I just, just wanted to touch on, on that point uh, leading up to, to this about knowing your brothers, knowing who's to your left or your right, even in training, even in pre-deployment. So when that call comes, you do have that trust. You do have that relationship. Uh, and I know we'd, if we'd got tasked, we'd come to Jason's location or any other team's location, just as we would expect. They would attempt mm -hmm. to get to us as well. Um, and I say that knowing that in Special Forces, they prepare you for kind of that isolation, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of pressure on, on you as a Special Forces captain uh, on these missions uh, to prepare you for that tough leadership role. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a phrase that kind of came out after OEF about, you know, these guys had the weight of America's foreign policy in our rucksacks. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is undoubtedly true, I believe, for all those teams, in particular in my team. Uh, there was not a well-developed plan. There was the framework of what Central Command and the command authorities thought they wanted to do, right. but the lack of information uh, necessitated put the Special Forces teams on the ground, let them develop the situation, assess the capabilities of potential allies, work with the interagency teams that are providing intelligence, and to help feed information from the ground up to the higher commands so they can help try and figure out what will work, what will not work, um, and, and get after it. And it's just a great time, in my opinion, to be in Special Forces mm -hmm. because of the autonomy we had as, as captains and sergeants figuring things out on the ground, making things happen. And we were, you had the ability to develop that information or intelligence on a target or a, a plan, an operation, and then all the way through planning it and executing it mm -hmm. uh, in a very rapid manner. Um, I, yeah. I think that the, the part that amazed me was, uh, you know, the, the cliche, train as you fight and everything, and, uh, you know, you go to these courses, and sometimes you, have, you know, sometimes you have instructors that take what they're teaching very seriously, other times you don't. Uh, when we were in uh, Robin Sage, a lot of the instructors would be telling us that you'll never do it this way. We don't know why we're teaching it. Uh, but what I found was every major lesson I'd learned through my career, whether it was in the Q course or Ranger School, I, I mean, everything that I was taught in the schoolhouse, I applied over there. Mm -hmm. I didn't find myself in a situation where I, where I was saying, 
yeah, well, in the schoolhouse when they taught it this way, that was totally unrealistic. I wish they hadn't taught me that. It was the opposite. Um, all the major muscle movements during the campaign, we really had been taught. We'd been taught them well, even by people who are less than motivated at times to teach it to us. I, I, it was really, uh, it really kind of floored me because uh, the, to me, the system worked. The training pipeline, all of that worked. Uh, you had certain unique areas because like uh, uh, Markle hit me for saying it, but I mean, when we talk about the horse soldiers, I mean, Mark was the horse soldier. He was the perfect man for the perfect mission in the North uh, with, with Dawson's cavalry. I mean, that, that was something that you couldn't have foreseen and it really was an act of God that we had the perfect officer there that could teach his people out of ride and could do everything he did. But that was to me almost the, the exception. Everything else, it was uh, what we were taught, we applied. Mm-hmm. And it really blew my, blew my mind uh, how well we were prepared for it. My, my sergeants, uh, you know, we had a very senior team at, at that time. And uh, by that I'm talking our average age was 32. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 10 out of 12 guys are married, you know, with kids. Uh, had been in the Army eight years. I had five uh, combat veterans out of the 12 of us. Uh, just a very mature, experienced team. But even in that new situation, the guys kept going, hey, we've been here before. Remember Special Forces training. Remember Robin Sage at this phase of insurgency, you know, as that would progress. Remember that. And so different times, there was highs and lows. But you had to regroup and, and, and be resilient in 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 what was going on during the day or through that that period this you know jason and my mission these other missions they were not you're in and out in a matter of hours it was you lived it breathed it 24 7 in the case you know for for weeks to months you know and it, it was definitely the super bowl uh but the the sergeants and I coming back as we're talking about this, we did the things that you do in training. Each day we would do lessons learned and an internal AAR, mm-hmm. whether it was five minutes, 15 minutes, sit down and go, damn, what nearly killed us today? How do we make sure that doesn't happen again? You know, how do we survive the next hour yep. and how do we win? Because we believed we could win. Having that confidence in our training and, and the resourcing and the people that were at our back even though you're relatively alone and unafraid, and that's certainly what it felt like is us against the world, um, it, you, you relied on that training that you'd had, the leadership lessons, the other people, mentors that had talked to you, every aspect of my career to that mm-hmm. point, to include character building events I'd had as a, as a teenager, as I, through high school and college. All of that came to that focal point in my life on that battlefield day after day as it did with those sergeants. But that was a phrase that kept coming up. We did this in Robin Sage, guys. We've been here before. Mm-hmm. It was slightly different. How do we apply it to this model and think through the problem and get after it and solve it in a positive way with the means we had available? And the worry that I have is that uh, uh, when you're in the schoolhouse, you're conditioned to believe that this is schoolhouse stuff that you'll never use. Uh, and Mark's lessons over there, how he applied what they did. I mean, these are things that uh, it, it takes maturity to be able to fall back on your training, to trust your training. Uh, and I, I feel like that that's often a weakness uh, of us as students is that we, uh, we really don't believe it until you're in combat getting shot at. And then you realize that uh, there was a reason you were taught these things. I would have to say, even, even in our mission, we were the students. <laughs> you know, we went in and we flew in and we linked, even with the maturity and training and experience we had in the deployments throughout the Middle East. We got in there and the, the militia elements that we linked up with, these guys have been fighting guerrilla warfare for upwards of, of one to two decades, you know, and, and they are the survivors. They have been whittled down through hard attrition. Uh, and every day for us was a history lesson with these guys. As we're riding along on horseback, 
which you found mind-blowing, because uh, you flew in on the latest technological helicopter in a damn sandstorm. We have SATCOM radios and GPS, but yet I'm riding a horse. These guys were pointing out, we fought the Russians here, we fought Mujahideen here, because they'd been on all sides of that, or they'd fought their neighboring tribe here. So they would be able to describe to you raids, ambushes, you know, and, and had fought back and forth over the same terrain. It was very, so we, I felt like we were the students and, mm -hmm. and we'd have been remiss to not listen to what they had to say because it's, it's their backyard. They couldn't read a map, but they could describe to you passionately, it's this village, don't you understand? It's this village right over here. It's this guy, you know, he's the one we're after, you know. Uh, so even even then in that role, we did, I felt like we were students, mm -hmm. you know, being, being, it, for Jason and I and the other teams, we were the insurgents. <laughs> yep. We were the yep. enabling the insurgents mm -hmm. in that particular short phase, uh, you know, until the the Taliban had been toppled. I think I think what's fascinating about the the picture you guys have painted over the past couple of minutes is the combination of both uncertainty at sort of a larger level where we're not 100% sure what the situation is that you're ending up in and, and what the particulars of that situation are. But the certainty in, in your own abilities and the ability of your team to function regardless of that, yeah. that complexity. Um, I, think that's really, I think that's a really interesting point to talk about how by taking training seriously and by understanding the crop of people you were with and the people you were going to interact with, on your teams that, that you were able to manage all that yeah. complexity and uncertainty fairly I, well. I, I'd had a great experience as an infantry officer, a uh, great experience as, a, as in a, a ranger officer, you know, doing those types of missions. And, and, and kind of through IOBC, the advanced course, and, and at the 101st we'd done OPDs where we went and walked the Civil War battlefields. And you're like, yeah, okay, what am I really going to learn from walking the Civil War battlefield. Why do I have to read these things? Why am I studying, you know, the battle at, at, at in Chattanooga or things that, that they had taken us to do? Why am I in Gettysburg? Uh, which was a great OPD, by the way. We flew up and parachuted in to the west side of Gettysburg oh, really? from a Ranger Battalion. And, and we walked and ran, as Rangers are prone <laughs> to do, all three days of the Gettys, uh, Gettysburg Battlefield. Did you guys do Pickett's Charge We did Pickett's Charge, man. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, but all of that, you're like, how is this, but there are key leadership lessons that are timeless sure. throughout this, especially when you live in austere field conditions. That soldier's life really has not changed. It sucks, it's miserable. We just maybe have a little bit of better clothing and gear now. So there's definitely some timeless lessons there. But, uh, um, that all came to a focal point. And, and I would say, as we talk about our, this a little more, we, after we liberated Mazari Sharif in the northern provinces initially on horseback, we had the flexibility and the maturity. Our militia army switched from horseback to, now they've, they've got, they're using captured Soviet Taliban, Soviet tanks, armored personnel carriers, and now we're suddenly into Soviet doctrine. And, and maintenance and what are those vehicle capabilities and weapons capabilities and how do you employ that weapon system. And my team also no longer on horseback. Now I have ATVs and I have four by four Toyota pickup trucks and soft skin vehicles. And I'm now doing mounted maneuver operations alongside of tanks and armored personnel carriers. And I'm employing artillery and mortars mm -hmm. that we'd captured, albeit Soviet systems. But uh, it just, that was incredible. Another to be able to switch into that mode and continue to apply and leverage the U.S. technological abilities, you know, our SATCOM and GPS. This was the time before UAVs, the little tactical UAVs that have now become so prevalent, were not on the battlefield. We did not have a UAV over our shoulder 24-7. Uh, we did not have armored uh, MRAPs. Mm -hmm. We didn't live behind castle walls with the T-wall. We walked the streets freely in, in one or two man team without body armor and could go anywhere we wanted, any time we wanted because of our trust and relationship with the local populace mm -hmm. in that area. Yeah, well, and that was kind of the, uh, 
that that was the uh, eerie part looking back on it was uh, you know in Robin Sage uh, the instructors would be warning you that if you pissed off the G chief everybody's going to die and you'd be like okay yeah I got it you get yelled at if you made mistakes right. you know always stay with the G chief whatever in Afghanistan I didn't really think about it until like years later but if any of us had lost rapport those were those were dead guys there you know your team was spread out to the four winds we were pretty centralized because we had so few people but uh, if we'd lost rapport we would have all died if your guys had lost rapport with any of their respective groups God knows what would have happened to your guys I mean it it really was uh, failure meant you died yeah we, we definitely in, in the case of our team we we, uh, you know, a special forces team is 12 guys. I'll leave whoever's listening to this to research the composition of the team. But, <laughs> but you're, man, you're manned and equipped to operate in two six-man sections. Right. Our team uh, had been an unconventional warfare team as our primary mission focus. So we had trained in a lot of the, the human skills as well as cross-trained the guys in, in, in the communications and medical and weapons employment and all that stuff. But we had worked a lot in exercises uh, in the U.S. and in, in the Middle East to work in a singleton, as a singleton, a two-man cell, three-man cell, so that we could morph, almost in some ways mimic a terrorist cellular structure that we could, we could operate independently as a two-man, three-man, four-man, whatever we needed. In isolation, before we went in, we doing our mission planning, had determined we are not going to go below four man mm -hmm. in a cell. So I can put three four man cells on the battlefield. All right, so what would that look like? All right, probably task organized, you know, logistics, C2, and an action arm mm -hmm. that's, that's doing things. As we got in there with our situation, within four hours of being in country, we went into two six man cells, and the six of us moved forward, and uh, we went through the next day, about another f 24, 36 hours, and that six-man, we're going to stay as six-man, but then we went through our first initial battles with our militia horsemen against tanks and armor, mm -hmm. and we realized, hey, we can win. We brought in air support to support that attack. We can win, but we've got to get a cell deeper. So right. we split into three-man cells, and that for us became the, the, the combination that worked is to put a team of three SF sergeants or officers, three guys, with uh, an Afghan militia commander that had between 300 to 750 fighters and get them dispersed out into that geographical area that they were focused on and then get another three-man cell and get with another commander and get them into it. So by that, we were able to spread out over several, several districts and impact the operations in, in several provinces. Uh, by doing that, and that became how how we worked. They sent me a couple JTACs because we needed more satellite-capable radios, mm -hmm. and with the 14 of us, we split into four three-man cells and a two-man command and control element. Myself and one of my sergeants moving around with General Dostum, the main regional uh, ethnic leader. Um, but we, we definitely were, were risking it. We were laying it out there, and we went, we went through a, a, a trust phase. Do we trust the guys we're working with? Do they trust us? It, it went both ways because they're putting their life on the line also uh, for what you're doing. But you, these guys are advising them. You're, you're performing many of the S functions mm -hmm. for that unit, gathering intelligence, coordinating fire support, coordinating for resources, uh, lethal, non-lethal, or humanitarian aid. Um, and it just, it, we were very fortunate in that the relationship we had with those commanders uh, uh, helping them by not portraying a large Soviet heavy-handed right. type of presence uh, meant a lot to them because they cautioned us on that. You know, do not become portrayed as the occupiers. Yeah. So. I mean, I, th I think one, one of the things that's interesting about this, this latest part of the conversation, to my mind, is sort of the, the expeditionary mindset you're talking about, whether it's from a, a logistical or support standpoint or whether it's uh, from, like you said, sir, uh, the fact that you're out there sort of alone and unafraid. And if there's one mistake, you end up dying. Um, and I know officers of, of my generation, folks that came into the force sort of in the mid-2000s, 
maybe have a little bit less of that expeditionary experience than than certainly you guys did. Um, and I know the Army is trying to work back in that direction where we're a little bit more expeditionary focused and we're able to do things without a huge logistical footprint. Uh, and I'm curious what, what that experience was like. I know as a Special Forces team you had sort of trained to do that, but what was the actual execution of that, that expeditionary lifestyle? Like you mentioned, you know, people on teams having to take up big roles, you know, that whole staffs do at, at other echelons and, and in conventional forces. So I'm curious what that experience was like in actual execution. Well, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take this in a little bit of a bold direction and then you jump in if I start wandering off the trail too far. Uh, SF doctrine, in my opinion, uh, was completely on the mark for what we needed in the invasion. I'll explain it this way. A, uh, an SF company generally has six teams. Uh, so if you deploy six teams, you might deploy a company commander. You know, you deploy eight or ten teams, you might deploy two company commanders and a battalion commander. Uh, if we had followed our own doctrine, uh, I mean, we, we went in with you know, maybe two companies of SF teams, which would have had one battalion headquarters that might or might not have even needed to have been in the country. Right. So, you know, my view of it is that we, we've always agreed that it was less than 100 guys that were really needed for that early stage of the war. But it was even, even a smaller number than, than uh, we, we've come to talk about because we ended up throwing in uh, so many headquarters and everything mm -hmm. due to greater political concerns that I'm not, you know, understand it, I got it. It's just one of the coolest lessons about the invasion that I felt was lost is we probably could have uh, done everything we did in the invasion with, you know, fewer than 70 guys mm -hmm. to topple a whole country. And it was because we were enabling uh, you know, our respective guerrilla leaders, you know, Mark especially was getting all these factions to work together. I mean, you're really talking about a, a pretty incredible capability uh, that we developed since the 50s, and we really validated it over there. And then as soon as the, uh, the, that stage of the war on terror was over and people were moving on to Iraq, all the lessons were forgotten and we switched to the big army, army of occupation mentality that uh, has been hard to shake for the last 16 years. It, at that, that phase, post 9-11, definitely a captain and sergeant swore. Mm -hmm. um, lots of uncertainty. You know, when your commander looks you in the eye, your whole team in the eye, tells you he doesn't expect you guys are gonna survive this mission. <laughs> and they're feeding you steak, <laughs> and they're going to buy your chief warrant officer a bottle of scotch and bringing it in, that they don't expect you to come back. You know, uh, they didn't in our case, because it was, hey, you know, go do this, we know A to B, we're gonna fly in, link up with this guy, try and convince him to do some things, uh, and see if we can work with him, mm -hmm. and try and get some of these others, who else can we work with? Tell us who, you know, who can we work with? And you know, we'll see you in six months. Come down out of the the mountains with an army to help support you know the conventional, the 101st, you know the the the, the I forget the name, the, the forced entry package. Mm -hmm. You know, we're gonna jump onto Kandahar or into Kabul or whatever, get into the urban areas, that that kind of thing, uh, and bring in the forces. Uh, and 10th Mountain was starting to build up in the north already, and I'm sure there was folks chomping at the bit of need an airfield so we can start flowing some tanks in and things like that, you know. Uh, but the, the, the plan had to be sorted out and it was being made up really at that point by what information we could obtain on the ground. Well, and it's being made up by us. I mean, that, that yeah. was the part that, yeah. you know, the, the mission was to uh, render Afghanistan unusable as a terrorist safe haven, mm -hmm. something like that. It, it was, you know, Killer capture Al Qaeda wherever you find them. But 
you know. I mean, that was really kind of it. It wasn't <laughs> what to do with the vacuum you're creating by toppling the Taliban, and it, it really was independently because we weren't coordinating. You know, Mark Mark was with Dostum, I was with, with Karzai. We, we were all figuring out what we needed to do to hold the country together after the dust settled, and it was something that we just did as captains. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really kind of crazy when you think about yeah. it because we were all just independently figuring out how to hold a country together after the after this stage of, of the uh, liberation in, was over. Yeah, in, in the north, as as that progressed and you liberated the northern provinces, and you're now our role is shifting to keeping the peace between the factions. Mm-hmm. And and Jason touched on this before. There was immense political pressure. I'm told from Secretary Rumsfeld as they're reading these reports from the field. And some of them are kind of coarse, mine in particular. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the best. The, uh, the best. Uh, I'm told Secretary Rumsfeld asked, well, who is the senior ranking guy on the ground? And got very upset when he learned that a captain, you know, was the highest ranking guy on the ground. Mm-hmm. And he directed General Franks to you get some more senior officers on the ground in there. And then that became... Uh, an issue with uh, the, the group commander mm-hmm. to go, well, no, 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 wait just a minute. This is special forces, unconventional warfare. That's let us put colonels in. And so then the battalion commanders were inserted uh, where there was literally only two SF teams on the ground. So we did not follow our own doctrine mm-hmm. in that case. But we did admittedly get to a point where, okay, now it is very political. It, be, it went from a military to a very political operation and, and those, the senior leadership come in. The colonels were soon, in our case, was soon replaced by an uh, admiral, a one-star, mm-hmm. you know, who come in to show more senior U.S. government representation. But in our case, the Afghans knew we represented, as a sergeant or a captain or a warrant officer, we represented the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. They didn't know our ranks. It was Commander Mark, Commander Steve, Commander whoever. We earned their trust didn't rank immaterial, but for them, we gave them an enormous amount of hope, uh, and, and and that was immeasurable when they are on the ropes and so desperate of a situation. But we represent the commitment by having people there, boots on the ground, to use that cliche, in our case, hooves. <laughs> it, 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 uh, that, that physical presence and having that leadership is a huge commitment. It's a sign of U.S. commitment and willingness to put a person in there. Uh, and we had to spend, at a similar time, I want to say, as a main lesson out of this, we had to spend an inordinate amount of time convincing them, because of previous U.S. military operations and events, that if any one of us became wounded, we were not going to leave, because the Afghan leadership that we were working with believed that if any one of the Americans became killed or injured, the U.S. would withdraw support from mm-hmm. them. And so we had to work through that that capacity as well. What uh, it yeah, just in in cycling through that, teams that did incredible things in different parts of the country, all trying to figure it out. We're all reporting back to the group headquarters, who then has that little bigger picture, trying to share that information back to us. So I knew generally once Jason's team went in. And other teams went in into that area. And it was important that we know that because a lot of times that conversation with our Afghan counterpart commander, they would learn. Mm-hmm. You know, it might not be right away, but over days or weeks, they will learn. They learn new themselves through their network that there may be a special forces team working with another guy in the part of the country that may be their rival. Right. And so then he's asked, well, why are you supporting this guy? You know, well, you both are fighting against the Taliban and al-Qaeda, so does that not make you allies in some capacities, you know? But to understand that bigger picture of what was happening around the country was important as well. I'm curious talking about how, how you were with Dostum and you were with Karzai. What, what some of the major differences were either in terms of the mission or just in the way that the execution had to happen based on the, either the personality of those two guys or the the situation that you found yourself in once it started to shake out on ground? Um, why don't we start with you because you had, uh, I mean, it, 
In it, the, it was it was an earlier timeline. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, to to, yeah. to talk about the timeline aspect of there were initial commanders in the north. Who can we work with? And you have to go back left of that briefly to understand that post 9/11 and pre 9/11, the CIA are the ones that actually had the relationship with the Northern Alliance mm -hmm. in the Panjshir Valley with with Masood and his folks. Uh, and so that was the initial entry point and entree and how we who could we work with and, well, and then, correct me if I'm wrong because I I mean this is something you and I never really had this kind of a conversation before the way I remember it the, the enemy of our enemies our friend the Northern Alliance and they legitimately were our friends but it really felt like we were going to help the Northern Alliance topple the Taliban and they would be running the country afterwards. I mean, that, that it, was what it did. I thought was yeah, going it on did. as we started. Yeah, and then, it, then you know, they needed, they wanted to raise another resistance groups. Yeah, but I'm South, just saying that but, when you started, though, yeah. it really, it felt, it, at the time that this began, again, from, you know, my, my part of this, uh, I mean, it felt like Dostum might have been the heir apparent. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it really, it wasn't just that, yeah, we you had, know, Mark was out working with this guy named Dostum. It was Mark was working with a guy who is potentially the future leader of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all generally had a sense of that. I mean, you had other team leaders with other leaders that thought yeah. highly of theirs. But, I mean, it, it really... The, it, no pressure, but you're with a guy that may be leading the country yeah. soon. He, and, and and knowing that and recognizing that, yeah. yes, uh, on the ground, he was very much a lead from the front guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and we got into a situation at one point where we're, we're doing a leader's reconnaissance of the troops, you know, preparing them for the battle tomorrow. And he does not like what he sees and starts, you know, putting some some boot to ass. Uh, on some commanders, literally, hmm. and grabs an AK-47, and that's my first clue. Something's about to happen, and then he's grabbing a radio and, and yelling orders in the radio, and I'm watching everybody and I can see in this 180 is leaping to their feet and mounting their horse or grabbing mm -hmm. their gun, and they charge, ground assault over a ridge, <laughs> like that with impromptu, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is the objective of this? And, and we went, but what we were, and I was there at the time with just one other sergeant, mm -hmm. and we're going, what happens if, because we're taught in the Q course, <laughs> stick with this guy, yeah. but now we're in a, in a <laughs> ground assault, and I just left my horse picketed back with my pack and some other gear I really wish I had on me, you know? Uh, <laughs> And, and away we go. Mm -hmm. uh, but what if that guy is killed or injured? You know, and so uh, that anyway, the that guy as as leader, his leadership in there was uh, managing that kind of tactical and operational fight. Mm -hmm. But then at night, I sit down with this guy, and now he's on a satellite cell phone, and he's calling commanders in other parts of the country. And going, what do you need? What's going on over there? So he he had been a general, mm -hmm. you know, in their army, and and uh, had commanded in the previous years uh, uh, before the rise of the Taliban. Had commanded us in the Afghan army, uh, you know, modern forces. And we had to have that. He's like, do you think I like living like this? You know, I used to have tanks and you know, and, and helicopters and MIG aircraft and things like that. So. Uh, he was working at that strategic level also right. to gather intelligence and, and understanding information and help resource uh, adjacent teams. J adjacent militia factions is what I'm saying. But the other militia commanders come, were willing to come and work with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, there were some rivalries, but we got those guys to agree together because their higher up told them to work together also. But, uh, um, Anyway, was it was it a bit of a similar experience with Karzai, or was he different personality-wise? Did he sort of execute operations differently? Well, it, I, I mean, we were pretty much the the bad news bears go to war. I mean, it it was uh, pretty much everything Mark said except the opposite. Uh, you know, with with us, it was uh, the 
we had a, a friendly posh tune uh, named Abdul Haq, um, who was shunning U.S. support, uh, but he was a, a prominent uh, Mujahideen and seemed like he'd be a strong leader in the South. Uh, there was a big concern over the state of the Pashtun tribal belt when this was over, uh, but I, I hadn't learned too much about that yet. And my team's initial mission was to link up with Abdul Haq when uh, apparently he got in trouble in the South after saying he didn't want U.S. support. Uh, and then he was captured and executed by the Taliban. So the first mission my team had was to link up with a guy that was in trouble only to find out that he was already dead. And it you know, definitely uh, gave you that reality check of, okay, so if we'd gotten there 12 hours earlier, would we have saved him or would we have been dead too? So the mission was delayed. Uh, and then we're told, okay, there's another friendly Pashtun that we want you to link up with, a guy named Hamid Karzai. Same thing, he's in the South, he's in trouble. Uh, he, he's uh, pretty much an unknown, he's not Abdul Haq, but uh, the CIA is concerned about you know, his well-being. So we got ready to go again. And then we're told, oh, he's dead as well. And then at that point, it's okay, so two guerrilla leaders in the last, you know, at that point, like 36 hours, uh, both die before we could get to him, and it, you know, raised the stakes even more. Uh, turned out he wasn't dead, and he got he got pulled out to uh, Pakistan, so then we were uh, told to link up with him. And when we got there, our mission was actually to uh, really just uh, keep him in Pakistan. Uh, the mission, as soon as SF started getting on the ground in Afghanistan, it went from a Title 50 to a Title 10 mission, meaning it was no longer CIA, it was now owned by the DOD. Uh, and the CIA, after losing Abdul Haq, didn't want to lose Karzai, but they needed to find a way to appease him and keep him in Pakistan so he wouldn't try to go into southern Afghanistan again and possibly get killed if he made a second foray. So. I mean, really, my team was sent down there to just keep them in place. But that was where there, there was friction because uh, I didn't work for the CIA. Their team leader was great. It's just we had a very different agenda. Uh, and in talking to Karzai, I mean, he made it clear he was going back into Afghanistan and he believed that if he didn't get the Pashtun into the fight, there'd be a, a horrible civil war. So returning to the kind of you know, you're sitting there as, as a uh, captain, and what does this mean? It's, I'm sitting there as a captain with a man telling me if we don't get him in, there'll be a civil war. Uh, so, I mean, my team looked at it and we said, okay, makes sense to us. Mm -hmm. And we made the mission happen. But the thing is, he had no army. He had a couple dozen uh, people waiting for him that uh, weren't really any kind of an organized force. Uh, and we're really starting from scratch. I mean, it, it was uh, as disorganized as you could begin. Uh, in some ways, it was kind of cool because we were it. Mm -hmm. we, we were essentially the, the cadre. Uh, but we never got above 300 men, and that wasn't until towards the end of the mission. So it was uh, just a, a very different uh if if any large Taliban force had overrun us, we were all dead, and we knew that. So it, it was uh, a lot more hide-and-seek and a lot less, uh, you know, strategic, moving moving your, your army around and figuring out how to retake the north. We we're just worried about how, how do we keep, uh, you know, the 30 of us alive right now. And then, uh, and then that evolved. Uh, but what was bizarre about the evolution is that all of a sudden it goes from, you know, basically a couple dozen of us to uh, Hamid may be the future leader of the country. I, I mean, it. There is this crazy shift. Yeah. Um, I mean, for all of us, where it was okay. Now what do we do? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it. It was really just a. It was a crazy, extremely tactical fight for us mm -hmm. where you really started with what amounted to a couple of squads and you ended up with sort of a battalion at the end of uh, at the end of the month. But 
uh, it, it was just a very different experience. Um, I, I was, uh, I, it was an amazing mission, but I, I just found myself always in awe of everything that Mark pulled off in the North while we were just trying to figure out uh, whether today we had 12 guys or 13 guys that were going to show up with guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we counted uh, 300 militia fighters the first day. So they they were a little further along, obviously, in their their organization and their structure and, and assessing where they were at, uh, you know. And and after we had our first demonstration of close air support provided by a B fifty two as a confidence, you know, uh, target that afternoon, uh, he wanted to attack the next day. Mm-hmm. So we're like, all right, let's let's see what they can do, and we'll try and support that plan, understand that plan. And uh, um, from there, you know, we were successful that first day. Uh, the Taliban counterattacked against us because we failed to stop a counterattack after we had had numerous close air strikes. Uh, there were no more aircraft to push our way. And then it became, we got to preserve the force. How do we get them extracted, create distance and space between mm-hmm. us and that armored element and uh, regroup and AR it? And let's get after it again in the, in the coming days. And we did. But in the north, the call went out then to rally Afghan Minutemen. Mm-hmm. And so we started to see then over the next several weeks of, of cohorts of villages of fathers and sons and, 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 and family clans that were riding horseback to join a rally around Dostum and Ada and Moakek, the, their ethnic leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and start to organize themselves. So now our challenge then became, well, how do we feed and equip, you know, this this growing army over over a matter of weeks? And airdrops were coming in at night of, of lethal and mostly non-lethal aid. Mm-hmm. You know, the lethal stocks were, were minimal, in my opinion. I mean, we were buying up bullets in the bazaar, you know, and things, uh, and any, you know, Bust, you know, still halfway functioning AK that can be found and other things that could be found and, and equipment that could be dropped in through the Title 50 program to, to get that quickly on the ground. But uh, our force quickly grew to over 2,500 inf- uh, horsemen and 500 infantry. And then Atta had pledged another 1,500. Uh, headquarters wanted us to and uh, split out a cell with Atta. And that's where like, no, we, we have already got a plan for these. We got our hands full here because doctrinally a special forces team is supposed to be working with approximately a battalion, mm-hmm. 500 guys. Well, we were doing that and then some as that scaled up quickly. And so they got another follow on a team to come in five, three, four, they come in, they work with Otta then, and we get them set up and then let them go with that and, and uh, uh, be that main conduit through, through Otta. Uh, and, and coordinate these militia commanders across the north to, to collectively move on Masri Sharif. The I, I want to note that it, that feeling, that momentum, you know, then the six northern provinces were liberated, and then that momentum swung around the country to to uh, Kabul and Jalalabad and Herat, and then Jason and 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 the teams that are in the south are working in that part over the next few weeks to have that momentum for Kandahar. Uh, the, the, the bond conference happened. And oh, yeah. so now I'm being asked of, hey, what does Dostum think about Hamid Karzai is going to become the interim president? <laughs> you know, and Dostum's still thinking, well, I'll be the minister of defense. So, well, now Fahim Khan, the Tajik guy, is going to be the minister of defense. Right. So what, what role are these key leaders and factions and groups going to play they just played an instrumental role in liberating that country, overthrowing that government, and their expectation is we are going to be in power now. Mm-hmm. But yet, you know, so they they are the 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 Uzbeks, the Hazara, and the Tajiks working together are a majority. Those groups over the Pashtun, individually, they're a min- obviously the Pashtun ethnically alone are are a majority. It was understanding kind of that landscape, but. These three groups and these minority groups were all joining together, and we did have some Pashtun commanders in the north mm-hmm. that worked with us also. But uh, so now you're trying to what's the expectations from a, a very high level political 
question now of will you support Hamid Karzai and the answer and they was control Kabul and the Northern Alliance yeah and the Northern Kabul Alliance controls point. Kabul and now yeah. they're going to let a Pashtun come in and and be yeah. the head of the government and and it, and it goes back to understanding their history in ways that I couldn't fathom we we in hindsight we knew so little about the rivalries mm -hmm. and the relationships and and what was going on but uh they they were willing to cede that though as long as their thing in the north was as long as our group is represented we should have at least one major ministry or cabinet position or we should have some positions that would represent the ethnic compositions was what they were for and uh kind of the for current history now dostum is the elected first vice president uh, of the country with Ghani, uh, who's ethnically Pashtun and, you know, technocrat, I guess, that has come back into the mix. And, and the other first vice president is uh, Hazara. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a multi-ethnic government at the moment. And then we force this crazy uh, political solution on them with a, a, uh, a non-constitutional host of the chief executive officer. And that, that, form of government does not exist anywhere in the world mm -hmm. but uh i know we're probably about to wrap up i just want to say if in the case of our mission uh, you know whoever's reading this watch the legion of brothers <laughs> or read uh, uh there's a book about 574 there's some books about 595 there's books about hey you have horse soldiers yeah. that has, has you guys soon to be a major motion picture <laughs> sort of uh, and then uh, only thing worth dying for was about yeah. about my team. Yeah. Uh, There's other references. There's a number yeah. of other references out there sure. that folks can read about. The this. Hunt for Bin Laden actually wasn't a bad book. It had a really good overview of what everybody's yeah. doing. You know, uh, the, the the final thought that I'll make though is um, what what I found fascinating was. Uh, because it, it was really, you know, big fish in a small pond. Mm -hmm. uh, there weren't that many teams. Uh, we all knew each other. Uh, there weren't that many key warlords. They all knew each other. Uh, everything we did had an effect on one another, even if we didn't know it at the time. So, like, uh, you know, there, there was one night where... Uh, there was a JSOC raid that was going on and I lost air support when I was worried about getting overrun mm -hmm. and I still had no people. Uh, and, you know, one thing that was kind of hard to manage was a big picture of who had priority of, of air support assets and suddenly we lose our air and it's like, well, we'll see if we survive tonight. And meanwhile, Mark would be using air, I'd be using air and we're using the same air assets. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, I, I don't I don't know if you ever knew this, but I ended up stealing some weapons from you by accident because uh, Karzai announced that he wouldn't go any further south towards Kandahar unless we had more weapons. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, the battalion commander with us got on the radio and they diverted weapons to us that honestly were probably more needed by Mark. We, we had enough weapons at that point. We didn't have that many guys, but for whatever reason it was we need weapons. Right. So I'm taking very needed supplies from Mark uh, as a political solution to keeping us pushing south. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really, everything we did actually had a profound effect on one another's operations. And it was something that, that really drove the lesson home for me where, you know, when you're sitting there and planning and you're asking for the world, uh, I think that you have an American mentality that oh, well, I could ask for the world and I'll get it or I won't, but who cares? But what I learned in Afghanistan was everything we did affected one another, whether it was air support, whether it was supplies, the politics. I mean, what ended up happening that was also, you know, a, an example of how interlinked we were, uh, Dostum was offering to come south to support us as we were getting ready to lay siege to Kandahar and if Dostum had come south, that actually would have made the siege of Kandahar more difficult because it wasn't going to be a siege. It was going to be Pashtun surrendering to Pashtun. Yeah. So we had to be able to communicate that, no, we don't need you. You working with Dostum had to make sure that he didn't come south anyway and say, screw it. I mean, it really, it, it was so interconnected. It, it really, I, 
you wouldn't have believed it if you saw it in a movie because you'd have said that there's no way it works that way, but it worked that way over there. Thanks for listening to The Sphere. Remember to subscribe to The Sphere on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we'd really love it if you'd give us a rating or leave us a review. Thanks again for listening.